How is it that a drummer for one of the most influential rock bands in history finds himself largely rejecting his pop music past to pursue a career as a composer, authoring a prolific series of film scores, operas, and ballets? That's what happened with Stuart Copeland. From his founding of The Police with Sting and Henry Padovani, who was later replaced by Andy Summers, Copeland has enjoyed a career that has been injected with creativity, unpredictability, and surprising opportunity. Along with his collaborations with artists such as Peter Gabriel, Roger Daltrey, Mike Rutherford, Tom Waits, and Stanley Clark and Deborah Holland of Animal Logic, today Copeland's open-minded approach keeps him constantly connected with new creative opportunities. His credits are too long to mention, and his position as one of the best musicians in the modern music era lives on. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Stuart Copeland. Hey, Stuart, thanks for joining us today. It is a pleasure. Hey, you know, I was kind of going over your bio, and, you know, I, I've known about you for a long time. I've been following your career for a while, and I know you were born here in the States, but you spent, you know, most of your formative years in the Middle East, you know, Egypt and Beirut. And, you know, I found it interesting that your father was a CIA officer, and uh, I think your mother was an archaeologist. But I understand that your father was also a musician and played with, you know, guys like Glenn Miller and, and the Dorsey brothers, even, even Erskine Hawkins, right? Why, yes. In fact, I, I looked them all up. I Googled all these guys that my father mentioned in his book. An eight-year period of his life um, mm-hmm. in the uh, 30s mm-hmm. um, when he was a session player. And he did all these amazing things. It's like a, just a, a, barely a page and a half in his book of this critical information for his son. Uh, um, and I looked up all these guys, and indeed Erskine Hawkins came, you know, busted out of uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. He, when my father played with him, hadn't had his hit yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of the people that he worked, that he played with in Birmingham, he was the worst, first white guy to play in an all-black band. <laughs> um, and uh, some of them have gone on to uh, great things. Yeah. Well, you know, from what I understand, outside of, say, you know, Buddy Rich, I guess growing up, you weren't, even though your dad was obviously into jazz, you weren't really into jazz all that much. And Well, I was. I was into Buddy Rich, and I was into yeah. drums, mm-hmm. and I dutifully uh, listened to all the stuff that my father uh, indoctrinated me with. And of course, nowadays, it's all considered wrong jazz. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I guess I missed all the right jazz, because right about then, as soon as when Jimi Hendrix hit and the electric guitar exploded across my brain, yeah, yeah. Um, that was pretty much it for trumpets and trombones and stuff. So the whole Miles phenomenon just went... I missed the whole deal. Didn't never never picked up on Miles until mm. ten fifteen years later. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of your music and collaborations, of course, have elements of jazz. And I mean, you know, you were just out with Stanley Clark last summer. So, uh, how does yeah? J- I got there. To, 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 it actually turns out that jazz is a lot of fun to play. Yeah. <laughs> well, how does as it, they say? I, I don't know who say, who gets this quote, but jazz is more fun to play than it is to listen to. <laughs> yeah. So where does jazz uh, line up, uh, I mean, with, with, with where you uh, sit now? I mean, are you, uh, um, do you take time? Well, I've and... since discovered Miles yeah. and various others, <laughs> and um, I get it. Um, and I guess a lot of the antipathy has to do with the relationship between rock musicians and jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. The former, which gets paid a lot, and gets all the girls, the latter, which don't get nothing. Yeah, isn't that In the spite truth? of how fast they can wiggle their fingers and how many hours they put into practicing. That's right. They don't understand that it's the feeling that counts. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. And um, I'm fond of wrecking dinner parties. Actually, no, enlivening, enlivening dinner parties by, you know, my 
my uh, noises about jazz, yeah. <laughs> which are really for comedic effect. Yeah. Because, of course, there's a lot of great jazz out there, and I love it. And, and as I discovered last summer, it's fun to play. Yeah. But it always does wake up the party when you... Uh, Disc jazz and people go, no, no, you can't, no, no, you got to hear some Miles, you got to hear some Coltrane, and you know, Miles Coltrane, I forget which one's which, you know, it's all yeah. just noodling to me. And, oh no, you can't say that, you know. Well, of course you can say any damn thing. Yeah, right, right. You know who said something similar to like that uh, a few years back? He was even Branford Marcellus was making fun of jazz like that, you know. And <laughs> and growing up in a real jazzy family, he says, "What's jazz? What the, you can say whatever you want about jazz. It's just music or whatever." So he was just like really loosening up. So it's just interesting you're saying that. Uh, you know, well, the thing is, every form of music has its really great artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every form of music, absolutely. Polka has really exquisite artists mm-hmm. yeah. and 90% of most forms of music is the other stuff that you don't need to bother with mm-hmm. and in jazz uh, it is a form of music in which it is actually easier to fake than in say the blues <laughs> where you yeah. cannot fake the blues <laughs> you're exactly right. right you need to have lived a life to play the blues That's right. yeah. you need to be able to put a life of pain into <laughs> one note and you've only got a few to choose from and there's nothing complex about the harmony. The listener knows where the harmony is going to go. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows it's absolutely a very strict form. Yeah. yeah. All there is is the emotion. Yeah, right. I've never heard it's it. very scant tools. The blues player says it all. Mm-hmm. And I would put jazz at the opposite end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That mm-hmm. is interesting. You know, back in the you know in the sixties when you were growing up, and you know you were attending American schools in the Middle East, and you know what was the genesis of rock and roll in America, in the you know United States, in the UK? Was it was it totally different? I mean, what were you immersing yourself back then as as, as a kid in school? You know, well in Beirut, um, there's Arabic music playing all the time, <laughs> uh, in the car radios everywhere. Yeah, there's always. Arabic music playing. And as an American kid, wishing I was in America, I didn't pay much attention to it, but it went into the DNA, deep, deep into the DNA. What my conscious mind was listening to, of course, was American music. Um, There was um, the British foreign, uh, what were they called? There was the Voice of America, which had like an hour a week of pop music. Um, But you'd drink it up, and there was a record store on Hammer Street that actually sold Western records. Really? And um, I was kind of young at the time for buying records, but my I had older siblings who bought all the records. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, the first one I bought for myself, I think, was Help, the Beatles. Uh-huh. Really? Long before Hendrix. As soon as Hendrix hit, then that was a whole turn of the page. But back in Beirut, it was the Animals, the Kinks, yeah. Stones. Mm-hmm. Kim Riley, who's one of our correspondents down in Boca Raton, Florida, she has a question. And uh, she said in the late 60s, you know, you found your way to England where you attended school. You know, you moved to the States for college. And then I think you ventured back to England uh, to find yourself as as a road manager and eventual drummer of Curved Air. And Very proud of the road manager part. Yeah. <laughs> roadie. We can call it roadie. Very proud of my roadie chops. It's part of the resume. Yeah. Well, I um, still respond to a big... 100 watt Marshall stack up. Yeah. <laughs> I look at that sucker and I just want to load it into a truck. <laughs> well, yeah, her, qu- her question about Curved Air, she said, you know, she wants to know uh, would you consider this like the major stepping stone in your career? Well, it was my first professional gig. Yeah. 
and there's a big difference between playing in a college band and playing with musicians that you like and dreaming and everything to actually getting paid and being on tour and going from one show to the next and playing four or five nights in a row on tour uh, with a band that is, you know, the, the name actually means something. Yeah. And fans are coming to see the band and they cheer, they know the songs and very, very different uh, experience. Um before that, I, I knew that world as a tour manager and as, and as a roadie. Um, I knew how gigs work and everything, but to actually be in the band yeah. for serious was a big jump, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it was, I'm describing it like it was this big band. All it was was a professional band. It wasn't that big. In fact, it was the very end of Curved Air's career. Yeah. Um, I was the last rat to jump aboard the sinking ship. <laughs> Well, he went from a sinking ship to one that was that floated itself pretty well, and you know it's pretty really? common knowledge that you know you formed the police. I jumped from the sinking ship to the cold rocks <laughs> of starvation and struggle. Rescue me! Rescue me! <laughs> well, I was. It was mentioned that it, you know it's everyone knows that you know you formed the the police along with Sting and. You know, most serious police fans know that, that it wasn't Andy Summers who was the original guitarist. It was it was Henry Padovani. And but, but uh, in a way, it was though. It's really unfair that Andy, who was so seminal to the group, so yeah. critical, the police was not the police until Andy joined. Yeah, and it's really uh, unfair that Andy has that slight asterisk <laughs> next to his membership. Yeah, right. But it must be said. I mean, we loved Henry. Right. But we were wallowing going nowhere well, what until was the day Andy joined the group both creatively and career wise mm -hmm. I know the story about how you and, and Sting joined Mike Howlett for uh, a gong reunion gig which I think that's where you that, tell me if I'm wrong yeah, but isn't that you guys are well researched well isn't that where you initially uh, met Andy Summers yes it was well obviously you know Summers is a phenomenal guitarist but what was the series of events that led to uh, bringing him on board to replace uh, Padovani well, we did these sessions for Mike Howlett, um, and then he had a sh the, the Gong Reunion Festival in France. Uh -huh. um, he brought us along as his solo deal, and with two basses, um, and Andy was the guitarist on the session. He was a bit short of material, so we threw in a couple of our crap police songs uh -huh. um, and did them you know, to build up his set, so Andy knew a couple of songs from the police set. Right. Uh, Sometime after we got back to London, pretty soon after we got back to London, we had a show. I believe we were opening act, uh, you know, uh, for somebody at the Marquee. Mm -hmm. And Andy was there, and he jumped on stage and, and was able to play a couple tracks, mm -hmm. a couple songs. Sometime after that, you'll have to talk to a German guy called Dietmar to get the exact dates <laughs> and what we were wearing on that day. Okay. Um, <laughs> I ran into Andy, as he says in his book, we both stepped off, stepped off the underground at the same time from different carriages and walked up. Hey, what are you? Hey, what up? You know. Hey. And he says, and he pulls me into a cafe, and he sits me down. He says, Stuart, you know, you and that bass player, I think you got something. Um, but you need me in the band, and I accept. <laughs> <laughs> now, and, and, you know, I've told that story so many times. You know, it's, yeah. it's material, uh -huh. and Andy hates it. You know. <laughs> But but it's 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 you know that's Andy's contribution was that he's very direct, gets to the point, mm -hmm. cuts through the bullshit. Yeah, 
And it is one of his great characteristics. Of course, he likes to see himself as a kindly, empathetic fellow, which, of course, he is in his own (laughs) way. Um, He basically ordered us to have him into the band. And I told Sting about it, and I put Andy off. I said, look, dude, you're a triple-scale guitarist. We can't afford you. You're going to, you know, he's going to, I'll I'll clear my roster. I'll I'll, I'll throw all my clients away. I'm going to, you know, I said, no, we... you don't understand. We we haven't got a record company. I'm the record company. <laughs> management. I'm the management. Yeah. Um, road crew. We haven't got a road crew. You're the road crew. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're not going to last. I mean, I, I hear you. I'm really flattered, but you're going to last a couple of weeks. You're going to leave, and then we're going to be. Oh, by the way, his thing was, uh, uh, I accept your. I accept, uh, but you got to get rid of the other guitarist. <laughs> Is that what you said? There you go. <laughs> in so many words. Actually, no, in exactly those words. Wow. Uh, you got to get rid of that other guitarist. He's got to go. And um, so I, I, I put Andy off. I said, look, it's, you know, that's great and everything, but it's just not going to work. And I made the mistake of telling Stingo about it. And see, he says, what, you're kidding? What, really? He, 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 well, you know, for him, it was a no-brainer. Of course. <laughs> uh, what are you, nuts? Okay, no, we're a three-piece band. We can't ditch Henry because, this, you know, this guy's not going to last. And, and you know, uh it, you know, it's, it's just gonna, this is gonna go wrong. And, and Stingo was adamant. No, no, no. And, and he, he insisted. Um, so I forget what happened next, but Andy was in. Yeah. And we, 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 you know, we, but I'm not getting rid of Henry. So then we're, well, I didn't want to be, which is a four piece band, goddammit. <laughs> and but we did play a couple shows. We, we went down to France, a gig that Henry got for us. You see, Henry was our man on the scene. Stingo and I were five years too old to be genuine punks. Okay. <laughs> um, and Henry was like, he could hang out at the clubs all night and hang out with the Pistols and the Clash and the journalists. And he was the person in the police that everybody liked. Mm-hmm. Pity about those two other old fake punk hippies, you know, <laughs> pretending. Mm-hmm. Everybody loved Henry. Mm-hmm. So we were still playing shows that Henry had worked up for us in, in France and at, um, I think, the Mont de Marsan Festival, and at um, the Bataclan, you know, uh, and so on. But then we went into the studio to record with John Cale producing, mm-hmm. would you believe, mm-hmm. which didn't work out that well. <laughs> um, and it was sort of like the deal was, well, we'll let Henry play on the record, and then we'll fire him after we've, you know, given him, an, <laughs> given him another record to play on. <laughs> and so we did the session, and um, he picked up that there was something weird. Something and he bad. calls up Sting and says, you know, what, what's going on? Sting says, oh, I'm so sorry. Sting thought I had fired him. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to fire him. And I hadn't. And uh, so Sting said, oh, man, I'm so sorry. You know, gosh, uh, you know, really. And then, what do you mean you're so sorry? What, 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 what? And Sting says, what, Stuart didn't tell you? Oh, God, oh, God. So then he calls me up and, you know. The deed had been sort of half done, yeah, yeah. and I, I had to, you know, there was still some, 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 you know, the flesh was still twitching, so I had to get out the meat cleaver and finish the job. <laughs> <laughs> Whereupon, Henry mm-hmm. turned around and joined Wayne County in the electric chairs, right. a big upgrade, yeah. um, and went out and was now playing with a much bigger band, yeah. which the, we opened for a couple times. That's we did a tour in, in Holland. Opening for Henry's new band, The Electric Chairs. Wow, it was a win-win, huh? Yeah, and Henry actually did very well in life. He became actually an A and R man, 
and um, is still doing great stuff even today. Yeah, he went on to, uh, didn't he, went on to uh, uh, sort of oversee IRS records as That's well. right, the yeah. IRS man in Europe. Yeah. Jeez, interesting. Well, we don't want to focus, uh, you know, a lot of all of our time on the police. You know, there's so much to cover with your own work. But I, I do want to mention how much Eddie and I really enjoyed watching your film Everyone Stares, uh, The Police Inside and Out. And when uh, you did, how was this? You know, when you decided to start shooting all of this incredible footage on Super 8, and were, um, were you shooting it, you know, at the time simply for fun, or did you have the foresight to realize that something, you know, cool would or big would come out of this? Well, I thought I was Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> and uh, I was shooting an epic uh, blockbuster. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, no, you, you know, you get a feeling when you're having an amazing adventure that you want to carve. That's what tourist photography is all about. You want to carve mm-hmm. a piece of that Hawaii off and mm-hmm. take it home with you. Right. And uh, we all went camera crazy because amazing things were happening right. in front of us mm-hmm. and to us, and we wanted to scrape something I couldn't hardly believe it I gotta take some of this home and show my friends and so we all we actually all got movie cameras but I was they kind of steered towards stills and I was into the movie thing in fact my next mission well on my list of missions is the blockbuster above mentioned known as Nat Hunt Secret Dick <laughs> which of course stars Andy Summers <laughs> And we were shooting this um, action movie, action thriller, uh, on the road using whatever support bands is the bad guys. Which yeah. is, there's one band called Fashion, uh-huh. uh, another band called, well, the Cramps. They yeah. made terrific yeah. bad guys. Yeah. Um, and there was a Dr. Fazami with his boner troner or something. I can't remember all the plot, but I, you know. I've got to fight, fight, you know, the snippets that we shot all the place. I've got to string that sucker together. Yeah. And uh, there should be a good like three minute movie in there. <laughs> well, I, you know, I was thinking about the fact that so much of this footage was filmed, you know, back in the late seventies, and it, you know, you finally brought it to light in two thousand six when it was premiered. Well, you know, at, what happened was they invented computers. Well, that, yeah, but that's what I was about to touch on. Well, the fact that you know, twenty five years later, we're treated to this incredible insight into the police, but you know, today no one would even have the patience to to wait to release material like exactly. this. Exactly. Yeah. Well, no, um, the thing about Super Eight footage was that there's no negative. And so right. all you have when you send it to the developer and you get it back and it's a negative, I mean, it's a, it's a positive. It's, yeah. um, it's the master. Oh, okay. So yeah. every time you run it through the projector, projector, you're scratching it just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And any editing that you do, now you young folk are hardly even going to believe me when I tell you. <laughs> I, I would have to cut the frame That's in right. between the two cells, um, put the thing on a little gadget that you have, and with a it file... File down to make the celluloid thinner. Right on the what on the north side of this piece, and on the and on the other the thing I'm kind of you know turn it over and file down on the south side of the incoming piece. Yeah, um, bring the two overlapping with a little bit of glue, <laughs> and stick those two things together. And hey, presto! If I got it right, it won't jam the projector. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's the way they and did it. So every cut was like that. And by the way, you have to. It takes up a frame at either end to do that. Yeah. So you lose a frame. Mm-hmm. You can't undo. Not like audio tape back in the day. You do an edit. You don't like it. You can stick it back together again. Right. Right. This time you lose a, fr- a frame. Mm-hmm. So any editing is destroying the master. Yeah. There's no turning back. And fortunately, I realized that. And because I had no, you know, with no experimentation, how can you learn? 
except by screwing up all your material. <laughs> and so right. I didn't. I, I eventually got to the point where, you know what, I, 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 got, I, I shouldn't. And by the way, just events overtook, and I was just shooting away and shooting away and shooting away. And, you know, um, didn't get a chance. I had a traveling little lab that I'd travel with for editing and really. looking at the movies and sticking them all together into reels and, you know, figuring out how to overdub uh, music on them and everything, kind of as a tour hobby. Um, but I put it all aside but kept on shooting. And then it, they all went into boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried uh, copying someone to video uh, during the video age. Mm-hmm. Um that didn't work so well. It was just real ugly. It was just, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, so they went back in the boxes, and there they sat until they invented computers. Right. And not just computers, but cheap memory. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. Even though my memories were so dear. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the megabytes turned into gigabytes, yep. and so eventually it got to the point where I could, um, you know, I just realized from one day to the next, that I can digitize a reel mm-hmm. and put it up in Final Cut and play with it. I love playing with movies and cutting stuff, you know, movies of my kids and so on. I'm a real right. uh, um, video editing, editing uh, enthusiast. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so the penny dropped one day. I've got 52 hours <laughs> of Jeez. the police from wow. 1979-ish. I forget the, yep. the years, but... Yep. You know, we were in motels still. Right. We had a road crew when we started. We had, a, you know, a guy selling T-shirts and two two roadies. Sure. Um, but we were still in motels, still in a station wagon and a truck. Mm-hmm. And every and we'd start out in the morning, leaving our motel, the crew pulling, getting into their rider truck, and us getting into our station wagon, and mm-hmm. off we'd go across America. That's where the movies began, and they ended um, actually before the last album is when I finally realized we were doing a barrel roll in a Learjet, and I was trying to film it, and I realized that I had missed the adventure because I was trying to film it. You don't get much of a shot from inside a Learjet doing a barrel roll. <laughs> Real exciting experience. Less exciting if you're trying to shoot it, you got a camera in your face. That was when I said, well, fuck this. I'm going to live life. That's right. And it turned out to be a really bad decision, because so, I didn't get any footage of Shea Stadium. <laughs> um, we were playing stadiums at that point, yeah. but we hadn't yet done Every Breath You Take. This was before the last album. Mm-hmm. So the band was still on and up, um, but it wasn't over yet. Well, you know, some of the scenes in uh, in Everyone Stares, uh, you know, where you, you capture, like, I, there was a couple of scenes where you're waiting out, you know, inside of a theater or something, and there's there's droves of fans waiting outside huge, up by the car, huge you know, waiting to catch, catch a glimpse of you guys. And, uh, I mean, these mobs are on the level of, like, Beatlemania. They were kind of insane. And well, we started out as a boy band in England. Yeah, right. Well, in America, yeah. we, we, you know, we started out as a fake punk band. That didn't work. We came to America as a, as a <laughs> genuine new wave band because the word punk died in America. Nobody wanted to use Nobody the word wanted punk. That. That's right. Associations didn't work over here. Find another word. Yep. So it became new wave. <laughs> yeah, exactly um, right. And we were our, our our in America. We were all aggressive. We had the right haircut. We dressed different. We were all hostile and all the, all that good stuff. Um, but we actually were real musicians, and that didn't work against us. Um, you know, F sharp minor was not the kiss of death. Um, and so in America, people responded to our music really strongly. And we, that's sort of where we came together was in America, even though we were a London band. When we went back, 
some of the singles had hit the charts in England, and it was a completely different following. It was those girls. Stingo is so damn handsome. <laughs> he just lit up the teen magazine. Yep. And we were, you know, uh, we were the Justin Bieber of the time. It was a real yeah. young teen phenomenon. And the Bieber's. And high, high-pitched shriek, a uh, very yeah. high-frequency that comes from young females yeah. really in a state of agitation. It's <laughs> like piranhas or something. It's, it's, it's hostile. And it hits suddenly when they get a good... You know, it's a, it's a it's a little intimidating. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you survived it, man. And, and I was, <laughs> oh, you survived yes, it. You're here. And, the little girls of England. <laughs> and, and, and the good thing is, is that uh, the film uh, footage is is coming to light, and that's that's well, a really footage. cool thing. That really cool. of that moment where it hit us at first. We didn't have any security. Mm-hmm. The first show we played, we were the support act of the com- of a comedy group. For lucky for them, mm-hmm. they were a comedy group, and they could take the piss out of us and themselves. <laughs> but they were the headliners, and on the first night of this. When we got back from America, um, the manager comes into our dressing room and he's saying to Miles, ah, you, we should have charged you money to be on this tour, man. We've sold out. We, this is the hottest we've ever been. We're all happening here. We should have charged you money to be on this tour. Well, uh, we soon realized why the tour was sold out. And as soon as we hit the stage, there was this shriek, and we had the, wow, that was incredible. And then we're trying to leave the building, and that's the shot I got with my Super 8 of just this bedlam, just this mob out there. Yeah, and we've right. got to make it like 20 feet from the stage door to yeah. the car. Yeah. Uh, you know, Miles had his fancy Jaguar, and yeah. we had to make it just that distance. Yeah. And it was a struggle. Yeah. <laughs> and the camera was ready. We get in the car, and all the faces pressed up against the windows <laughs> and everything. Real exciting. It's a, it was a funny scene. I, I remember when you guys were almost like uh, tempered, uh, you know, touching the water, like, okay, ready, one, to, okay, now, <laughs> let's, let's yeah. go to the car, you know. It was well, pretty that, amazing. That, that, on that same tour, I actually have that shot of a couple different gigs. Um, <laughs> and uh, later on that tour, when Stingo's trying to get out to the car, and that's just like that. Okay, they got all the blockers ready. Okay, all the, you know, the full backs of the, you know. Okay, height, you know. And out he goes, and they'll shriek. And uh, he, he, in this case, it's about 10 feet he has to make it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, uh, one of our correspondents, Uwe Reith, he's in uh, in Constance, Germany. Um, he has a question for you. He says, you know, um, I understand your drumming style is, is so energetic, precise, and, and sometimes raw and unique. He he says, uh, assuming that the police never existed, would have you have wanted to play in that unique sort of avant-garde band such as the police, or would have you rather become a, a session player, a studio musician, if, if that would have oh, never happened? God. I, I, well, I was a crap session player. Um, <laughs> uh, discipline problem, uh, tempo problems, uh, all kinds of problems. Really? Uh, uh, you know, the only place for me is in a band. I would have not gone, you know, I probably wouldn't have been very successful as a session player. Uh, and I was actually playing in an avant-garde group. It was called uh, Progressive Music at the time, Curved Air. Right, um, right, exactly. Of course, by the yeah. time I joined... Any idea of being progressive is long gone, and just give us a hit. And we were trying to be as mainstream as we possibly could just to get on the air, you know. But it was all over by then for Curved Air. Um, Would I have been as interesting without those two particular guys? I don't know, but I certainly did learn a lot from 
the journey with Andy and Sting. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Let's take a break and go back to a project, Stuart, that you released back in 2004 called Orchestrale, and the track I want to play is called Birds of Prey. From our guest today, Stuart Copeland on Inside Music Cast. turn our focus away from the police for a bit. And I want to talk right now about some drumming. And, and, you know, when it comes to distinct drumming styles, you know, without question, you have definitely a, a signature sound that, you know, I, I can pick out a Stuart Copeland track when I hear one. And I've always thought that, you know, one of the traits in identifying your sound is is, is not only, you know, like a straightforward driving approach that you tend to have, but also the way that you tune your kit, particularly the snare. I've always thought that your snare had a really tight sort of pop to it. And, and, am I right in assuming this? Uh, well, yeah, it's tuned really, really high. Yeah. And it was kind of a reaction against, you know, the recording sessions with Curved Air, where the yeah. producer 
said, okay, uh, you can leave the studio. Come back in two hours, and we'll have your drum sounding real great. And I come back in two hours, and the drum sounded really crap. And you know the fat back oh we got you a nice fat back uh-huh. well I don't want a fat back I want a crack that'll bring a bird down out of the sky <laughs> fuck your fat back there you go so that's what you think about tuning okay <laughs> well it, well I discovered um, that the PA, as a tour manager and as a roadie, I could observe, you know, watching the same band every night, not being on stage as the band, mm-hmm. I could see that the drums sound really different in the sound check when you're, you know, going down the tom-toms, boom, 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 right. boom, boom, and they get a real, oh, man, that's great. And the third drum, bah, you know, still, as soon as the band starts playing, it's real, it's gone. You can't hear those big, bad tom-toms. You can't hear that fat back either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you tune them really high, they don't sound so great in the sound check when you're on your own, but they cut through the band when you're playing. And that's just sort of kind of physics or something. Yeah. Audio physics. Uh, (laughs) It's just kind of a little trick that, okay, get over how dinky they sound without the PA on, Mm -hmm. without the band playing. It's going to cut through and it's going to sound great with all the other textures on stage. Yeah. Hey, what is it? What is it about the specialness of a, of a reggae beat, how you can slice and dice it and just chop it up and be precise and, and be ahead, behind, or whatever. And I mean, what is it about that that you can, you, you've done such a great job over the years just uh, perfecting, you know, um, well, that, that it's kind the of three beat. Yeah. And when you are really at home on three, when three is your favorite beat of the bar, and that's mm-hmm. sort of your anchor point, your mm-hmm. fulcrum point yeah. around which everything um, operates. Um, then all of the mysteries of reggae, all of the tricks of reggae become easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason, in my case, that came so easily is because I'd grown up with Arabic music, which also That's emphasizes right. the beat three of the bar. Gotcha. Uh-huh. The baladi rhythms of the mountains of Lebanon and all over the Middle East mm-hmm. is one and, and three, four, one, th- th- three, four, one, three. All not three. Yeah. <laughs> and when you live on three, and one can be absent, in fact, it really is great fun when you completely dispense with one altogether. Yeah. One is an intake of the breath, a hole that you fall into, and when you're lying prostrate, three lands right on your heart. <laughs> yeah. Amazing, yeah. And, Interesting. And when that's sort of um, deep in the DNA... I think it frees you up for using that and doing all different permutations mm-hmm. um, that made it a lot easier for me to play reggae than for Topper Heaton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There were so many there were so Just many came tracks. up with the idea first, by the way. Yeah, interesting. Well, there were so many tracks. I mean, even police tracks or whatever that they, they were just grounded with, you know, with the reggae beat and I mean, it made it very interesting where you guys were going, but I think you had, you've had probably had a lot to do with that, more than the other guys, right? Well, no. The, the one, one of the interesting factors about reggae is that it takes two at least to reggae. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You sort of have to have that up chick of the guitar is really critical. Right. And it, the way it works against the downbeat. You know, bass and guitar can recreate reggae, drums and bass, 
can, you know, it, but you, it's the way the, the instruments work off each other mm-hmm. uh, that really makes that reggae trick work. Um, and the other two, you know, the, the, particularly Sting discovered Bob Marley, and that was it for him too. That's all he wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and it was in his case, it was the uh, melodic aspects of it, and and I don't know, reggae was a really cool kind of music. Yeah, and it came naturally to us for several reasons. Yeah, you know, I've always thought of you as as an unselfish drummer, and and really true to the music. Try telling that to the bands I've played in, <laughs> I had a feeling you were. I, I really, really full heart. I listen like a dog to my fellow players. My religion is to hang on every word of the yeah. lyrics and to yeah. be the other players to play outside my instrument. That I give so much, and yet I'm an infernal racket on the stage. Well, you know, I, and it, it, it is over. Folks, it's just the enthusiasm that makes me overplay. And I, the reason I, this is kind of a realization from looking at, at uh, Keith Moon, who everyone loved as a drummer. All of us, we're all fans of Keith Moon. Yeah. The only people who are not quite as keen on Keith Moon as the rest of us are were the guys in his Man. band. He just <laughs> right. would shut up for a minute and hold a beat. Well, you know, it, well, I and guess... I, I've come to the realization um, <laughs> that. Although people get a buzz, when I light it up, it does light up, okay. But sometimes, you know, there's just a surfeit of enthusiasm, perhaps, and then there's the little matter of tempo. Um, So I'm glad that you call me a generous musician, Um, (laughs) but would note that it ain't always easy. Well, where I was going with that was that it made me think that, you know, I don't ever recall hearing you break into a drum solo. I mean, very no. rarely. with the uh, exception. I did do one on Letterman. You did? I was yes, about to did. say that. You did one on Letterman, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah, right. <laughs> I've played two drum solos in my life. Yeah. One of them was on Letterman, and one of them, I was in a cage in Africa being That's right. attacked by lions. Is that for the rhythmist? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I don't think they liked it. The lions. They did not, which is why I was playing a drum solo. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> have, you, have you always played uh, traditional right and match left? Yes. Okay. I was curious about that. I, I... No, no, no. The other way around. Traditional left, matched right. That's right. I mean, oh, that's right. Uh, unmatched. <laughs> that's right. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> go ahead, Eddie. No, I was just going to say, you know, when, when you were at, uh, eventually you, you studied at UC Berkeley, and uh, obviously there must have been music, but uh, what, what was your what was going through your your musical well, I brain? I did not yeah. qualify to get into the music school at UC. Really? Uh, although I had studied music at my first two years of college down in San Diego, mm-hmm. at Cal Wee Wee, um, <laughs> I was not able to qualify. I was suffering from a, a uh, fever at the time when I took the tests there, but I wouldn't have been able to qualify anyway. My sight reading wasn't good enough. My ear training had lapsed. I could no longer easily identify um, anything beyond a fourth or a fifth, let alone transcribe an eight-bar figure, you know. Yeah. Uh, no, no way. So instead, I studied communications and public policy. Okay. And all the other students in communications and public policy were headed for either politics or advertising. And it was all about how the media work, how public, you know, how the gestalt forms, um, and so on. It involved journalism, it involved uh, uh, anthropology, sociology, uh, psychiatry, psychology. Um, and it all was extremely useful. Because it turns out that the stuff I had half learned... Um, up until that point, about music, about harmony, figured bass, and building chords, and all that stuff, um, I never used until 
20 years later, or however, when I became a film composer, and even then, I still don't use any of the harmony stuff. All I, you know, I, I, I use the, uh, the, the notes on the page, the, the, the language of the score, you know, yeah. um, mm-hmm. yeah. the nomenclature, I still use that, and I, and I yearn to get better and better at that, and orchestration so on. The actual harmony part, Who's got time to figure out what chord you're playing unless you're a guitarist? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> if you're a guitarist, you got to name the chord. I need to know that it's a G minor. That's yeah, right, exactly. That's right. If you're a composer scoring a scene or a ballet or an opera, you haven't got time to add it up and say, oh, well, Kim, I, uh, I must be in this. You know, it's, it's what it is. <laughs> right. And your ears tell you where to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually probably was done a favor by UC by having them redirect me to where I, I could keep up with the classes and actually learn something to, that would be of use. Mm-hmm. I'd gone into the music department, number one. I would have had a tough time keeping up in class, yeah. as I did when I was at Cal Wee uh, All the other kids <laughs> in class played piano all their lives. And I right. um, but also, I would probably be playing timpani in an orchestra right now. Mm-hmm. Hey, listen, we, have, uh, we opened up the lines earlier. On uh, on a Facebook page for any of our fans and listeners from around the world to ask you questions. This this question comes from Derek Hale, and uh, he says, um, uh, Stuart, he says, what are the, some of your memories and feelings about uh, Animal Logic? And of course, this is about, of course, your 1987 collaboration with uh, that was amazing with Stanley Clark and De- Deborah Holland when you guys formed a band. Well, Stanley and I figured. Rather than make disparaging comments about pop music, let's make us some. If it's so easy, <laughs> let's do it. Um, and only thing was, neither of us were singers, and neither of us were really songwriters. We think, okay, let's find a songwriter and make some pop music, a really good songwriter. Yeah. In fact, let's you know. So we 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 listened to tapes, and I came across a really good singer songwriter named Debbie Holland, and another thing that was interesting about her was that she was a new form of American woman. Mm-hmm. Which was all about intellect and emotion, rather than babeosity. Right, right, right. And that inspired me in a way because we want, we're going to make pop music here, but it doesn't have to be stupid. And her lyrics were really intelligent. She mm-hmm. was a really interesting person, and actually very beautiful, but just not, you know, babe factor. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that wasn't her thing. You know, she was a, a person with something to say. And that just seemed like a really valuable step forward in a musical collaboration, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it took us a couple of years to get the business side of it together, to get a record company together. Uh, we made the album, and it just took forever. Meanwhile, Stanley and I both, at, at exactly the same time, got deep into film scoring, and that was just so lucrative and so yeah. all-consuming. Mm-hmm. And you you know you can't dabble in that you've got to be in the marketplace doing that and the minute you blink you're out of it and so we had a lot of it was very difficult for us to put the right amount of time into animal logic uh even though we liked the music um and we were inspired by working with Debbie Holland um enough to try again and do another album we actually did two albums that's right um but we couldn't put enough time into it. It was one case where the record company was there and the band wasn't. Um, there was another problem, which was that people who went out of an evening to see Copeland and Clark 
weren't expecting to see a pop song. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they weren't expecting to see an intelligent female saying something important. <laughs> yeah. They wanted to see the drums and the bass carve it up. Right, right. And that's reasonable enough in hindsight that that's what the audience expectation was, and that's probably what my expectation would have been. Mm-hmm. That's not what we did, and we could feel that wrongness um, every night. And we could actually see Debbie singing her heart out at the front of the stage, and there's somebody in front of her sort of waving at us, you know, indicating, can you get out of the way? You're obstructing my vision of Stanley <laughs> <Yeah>. Clark. Uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, cruel, cruel shit she had to go through. Wow. Um, she learned a lot about life. Um <laughs> And so it it was a really great idea, but not such a great idea in other respects. And we became, you know, all three of us became lifelong friends. So that was ultimately a very good thing. But you know what? She, she's such an amazing singer. She is. You know, she's she's what has such a beautiful voice. I loved her voice, and it yeah. fit perfectly. You know. Yeah, very, and and also uh, really deep musically as well. She really knows her stuff. She has a lot to say musically. You know, Stanley's pretty much a tower of music himself, and but and she was right in there. She was absolutely musically able to keep up. Yeah, not as a soloist um, in the way that people would have expected Stanley and I to flash it up, but as a you know, with her understanding of of how songs are constructed. I remember hearing uh, the song. Sometimes it, f- it feels so good. It, it, it was um, played on a college radio station, and I was. It, they had a, a four-hour block every night after midnight where they play you know, all this probably CMJ type stuff, and uh, and I remember hearing that song, and I you know it was pre-internet obviously, and I was you know thinking where am I going to find this? You know <laughs> how am I going to find this? Now today it's so easy to find the music if there's something you're interested in, but I had to really hunt to find that album, mm-hmm. and, and I ended up. Ah, I remember it for, those days as well. Where I'd, I'd pull you know listening to NPR or something like that. I yeah. had to pull over. Uh, and wait to the to the to the next break and hope that the guy remembered to back announce it. Right, I know it. exactly. Yep. I know, just that track it was two tracks ago, but I, I, he's got it announced now. I'm going to pull over so I can write it down, and then he doesn't. <laughs> and it's time for the news. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I ended up calling the radio station that night. You know, at two thirty in the morning and begging the guy to tell me. You know, who was that? Can, in, <laughs> so no, I've I've always I, I what I appreciated of um you know heard you. Um, speak a little bit about the, your collaboration with Stanley and Deborah is is that it was just a very unique blend because you you two were sort of outside the box and she was a little more you know within the box and you felt well, that you gotta uh, have some yin with your yang yeah hey guys well let's take a break and um, I want to check out a track uh, by Animal Logic from their second album and that's the one with the uh, trio of polar bears on the front and this is if I could do it all over again from our guest today Stuart Copeland on Inside Music Cast. Say what's on your mind 
We've got another uh, question from a, uh, one of our listeners. His name is James Ryan Jr. He's from Illinois, and, and he, he asks, what was so special about that symbol you got from Barry on the episode of Storage Wars he was on? He <laughs> said, <laughs> well, I was just having some fun there, and it was a, it was a gag, okay? Okay. <laughs> and uh, I, I, you know, I, it was actually turned out it was a pretty good symbol. It's just a Zildjian, for God's sake, you know. <laughs> but I have been looking for the, the Zildjian ride. Okay. You know, in fact, Tasty now make an excellent ride symbol, which is what I use. Uh-huh. And my quest is over. But for a while there, they weren't. And of all the incredible different products that they make, of really weird exotic shapes of symbol, types of splash, and all, you know, crotales and all kinds, they, they have the widest range of of strange symbols that they make. Mm-hmm. One thing was missing all those years was the ride symbol. And so I was kind of secretly, you know, hankering for get me one of them Zildjians, you know, which is that real ting, 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 just real nice crisp yeah. thing uh, yeah. for playing other than stadiums. And so he brought those Zildjians, so I went into my shtick. Oh, you know, where, you know, but, oh, I'll tell you, I give it 40 bucks for that because, you know, that's my symbol, and I burst into tears and went through the whole holy grail of symbol routine. By the way, he gave me the 40 bucks back at the end of the day, yeah. and uh, there's a couple extra, he gave me the extra <laughs> snare drum as well. I he got his shot. He got his 40 bucks worth of shot, no doubt. That's cool. So he was a happy guy. All right. <laughs> you know, you know what's were... amazing about that show, which I had never heard of until <laughs> he walked in the door? So um, Around about that time, I also did Letterman. Yep. And, you know, when you do a national show, you know, for the next week or so, there's a glow when you walk through airports, there's visibility, and you've got to deal with it, and you're slightly more visible than you were the week before. Yeah. <laughs> I've never had any pronounced shift in visibility, such as after storage wars. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Much more than Letterman. Oh Suddenly, every, hey, you're that guy from Storage Wars, oh, hey, you rock, you know, <laughs> everywhere, you know. <laughs> Um, That's it hilarious. was amazing how that show, which I'd never even heard of, and actually it was a pretty fun show. Yeah. And Barry is fantastic, by the way. He is a really cool guy. That's cool. Uh, we didn't know each other before he walked in the door, but I love him now. Yeah, no, oh, that's hilarious. You know, <laughs> you know we've listened, we've uh, interviewed a, a lot of musicians, and we have sort of found that the mostly the the true creative musicians sometimes a very very few of them find themselves to this thing called you know film composing for film and for theater and the arts. So the question is, you know, how did you? you know, roll over a trip or collide with music for film? Did somebody invite you on the first project, or was it even your interest, or was, uh, how did that happen? It wasn't an interest, but it was Francis Ford Coppola. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Called up out of the blue. I took the call. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And he said, come on down to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where we're making a movie, Mm -hmm. and check it out. So I came down, and he actually had a bunch of other interesting musicians, and he, he wanted to get a non-film composer. His dad had composed the score for his other, the companion piece, The Outsiders, also by S.E. Hinton. Um, but for this one, he was going all art, black and white, and he wanted to get a non, he wanted to just make it non-movie. So let's get somebody who doesn't know jack about movies. And um, he got a couple different people. Um, and by the way, one person was a full-on film composer, um, you know, mainstream. Um, and so we all went, showed up there, and he just, I don't know, it was like a competition or what. It was, <laughs> but I, I checked into a studio and just started recording sounds, and I got into this concept of the loops. Yeah. And I 
picked up sounds. Him and um, uh, not Carmine, um, John Carlo, and 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 Roman. Okay. We went out. His teenage sons and I went out and got sounds of pile drivers. We taped the billiard pool uh, ball break and anything that we could loop. And, and by that, in those days, a loop was physically a loop. It was a loop of tape, two-inch tape, that goes across the tape head, the playback head, and onto a take-up reel that's mounted on a mic stand, across the room onto another tape reel on another <laughs> mic stand, and the tape goes around the room yep. and back across the, the, the tape head. Yeah. Um, physically, a loop of tape. Yeah. Wow. Um, and on that loop were these... The, the trick was to synchronize... With two tape machines, the different, you know, I had a billiard ball break, dogs barking, different sounds, yeah. and creating kind of these rhythms that were related to each other and would land together every so often, and creating these loops. And it was, since the film was all about time, which is what got us into this, mm-hmm. and um, it was, it, you know, Francis kind of liked the sound of all this. He wasn't quite sure what the hell I was talking about, but he kind of liked the idea of it, you know. Uh, it sounded just out enough to be, you know, to maybe it'll work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I was doing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, while he was rehearsing the movie with Matt Dillon, Diane Lane, Dennis Hopper, and uh, Larry Fishburne, and, you know, an unbelievable... Every one of those kids has won an Oscar by now. Yeah. Almost the entire cast of Rumblefish, Rumblefish is now yeah. sitting on an Oscar for some movie later in their career. Yeah. And they Amazing. were just kids at the time. Yeah. Anywho... Um, these loops became kind of the basic, you know, Francis is very high concept. And I got him a toy to play with on the set, which was a metronome. And on the metronome, you could set a BPM, and you could have that BPM clicking away. Click, 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 click. Mm-hmm. But you could fade up another little thing, a little handheld device, yep. which is the threes against that. Click, 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 click. Wow! And he's and the poor actors are trying to rehearse their scenes while Francis <laughs> is putting this thing through the PA and experimenting with changing the tempo of the scene. Interesting. Miz, Matt, Dylan, and Diane try to do their scene, and they, they're all, let's try that a little slower. Click, 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 click. You know, <laughs> and uh, everybody's going nuts and wishing that fucking drummer would get out of here. Jeez. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> and I went back down to the studio, and we had a we had a green light on the concept. Wow! And it actually was a very lengthy process. Uh, he they actually went and shot the movie after rehearsing it, and then they cut it, and months went by, and uh, thought the whole thing had gone away. And then I get a call, okay, well, um, come and score the movie. So I checked into a studio in San Rafael, California, and um, I got the movie uh, right across the the bay from where Francis was cutting it, um, and started trying to figure out how you score a movie. And the whole business of the clicking, every reel of the film had its own tempi. Um, and the music was built on those which the picture had been cut to. So in other words, I was dealing with a movie um, that, I wish I could remember the editor's name, but he cut the the scenes with that, not Francis's clicking, but with the dogs barking and the billiard ball break mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. the other sounds, and he cut the movie to those rhythms. Wow. So that when I came along and put music, I actually had uh, bar lines landing with the picture cut, as opposed to an editor who would not 
be thinking about that at all. Yeah. So it was kind of a synergy of Francis's grand design, the composer who didn't know what the fuck he was doing, <laughs> and uh, the sound the, the, the sound design crew that Francis had working, yeah. really eager to push the boundaries and wow. go with whatever zany idea this drummer guy comes up with. That's very That's cool. Amazing. Story. That's cool. Hey guys, um, let's take a break and I want to check out a track from uh, the Rumblefish soundtrack that Stuart was talking about uh, from 1983. And this is a track called Don't Box Me In.
Something, you know, I didn't realize until recently, but uh, you've also scored uh, video games. And, and do you do this kind of work often? And tell me about the challenges of scoring. Games was a blast. I did a game called Spyro. Mm-hmm. And even years later, I still get all kinds of traffic about Spyro. Uh-huh. You know, it seems to have quite a lot of impact. It was a very successful game. I got, you know, I got platinum discs for yeah. Spyro, um, which is kind of cool for a game. Um, and it was the most fun work. And it uh, was another example of an interesting phenomenon about creativity, mm-hmm. which is that um, when you have to create a lot, uh, quickly, and you know, every day you just got to create. You do, mm-hmm. and not only does the quantity happen, but the quality just gets better and better. Yeah. And I've learned this when doing Equalizer, um, mm-hmm. episodic TV. You've got a new show; it comes in on Tuesday. You got to score that bad boy to ship it Friday. Yeah. Um, first, you know, on the pilot, you're, you've got plenty of time to do the pilot. They're kicking your ass every which way. They're arguing about the direction the music should take and everything like that. Uh, and you're, you know, you got a couple of ideas out of the cookie jar. You got sometimes the next episode comes and you still got some things in the cookie jar. The third episode, by the time you get to show four, you're out of your cookie jars <laughs> run dry. You got to come up with stuff yeah. now. Right. And episode five, episode six, episode seven, episode right. eight, and before you know it, you are just cranking. Mm-hmm. And the show comes in Tuesday. You look at it; it's just like as you're looking at the notes and looking at the episode, it's already happening. Here, stop the movie. I got some music to write. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and creativity is like that. So, mm-hmm. when scoring a game, which is just endless, um, it's like recording a doing a triple album of backing tracks. Um, and uh, every you know, I could I could do like three a day. You know, okay. Yeah. Looking at this level here. Okay, let's start off here. Dun da 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 dun da da. Okay, a little drunk. Okay, a little You know, okay, let's that's four bars of that. I can stretch that out another. You know, I'll make sixteen bars out of that. Okay, then let's let's take it up a fifth. You know, I got a fourth, and you know, stretch that bad thing out, and then like, okay, we need a change here. Oh, something else. Another. Okay. An hour later, I got a, I got a track. It's got a verse and a chorus and a middle eight and a, you know, and it lasts for about two and a half minutes. Perfect. Next. Okay, what else I got? Uh, a little slightly different. Let's try something in threes. Then generally I could do about three of these a day. And then the next day I'd finish them, polish them up, make them cool. Yeah. And so that's, you know, three tracks in two days. And you get a momentum going where the ideas just flow. And the yeah. more you do it, not only the faster the ideas come, but I'm still, to this day, plundering spiral licks, melodies that I came up with just in the heat of the moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, also Dead Like Me, a television series that I did for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Some of the best tunes I ever wrote were these facile, um, you know, you'd think it would be a very shallow creative environment, but actually, just that process of working fast and, you know, on demand just gets the juices flowing and the quality of the material there is actually stronger than for me to sit down, let's see, I've got a commission to write a 15-minute concerto for such and such an orchestra. Where do I start? And I start working and I come up with an idea and it's slow, slowly work up momentum. You know what? Let me have a look at one of those uh, equalizer themes. Mm -hmm. And uh, there it is right there. It's the whole trick. And immediately, I can always remember the fever of when that tune first came about and um it's it's amazing that the stuff that's that has really lasted 
uh, is the stuff that I arrived at most quickly. Mm. That's very cool. Uh, tell you know, I was something I've discovered recently was your YouTube channel and you know the jam sessions that you. Uh, oh yes, offer that I you have big plans for that. Yeah, it's well, your studio is called the Sacred Grove, right? Yeah, and uh, I'm sitting here right now in the Sacred Grove. <laughs> well, these these jam sessions are just kind of loose. We, you know, you've got some fantastic musician friends that drop by, like Neil Pert and some other guys. But but outside of capturing these performances, uh, what do you hope to come away with after a session? Well, it's a combination of wild, wanton creativity and deep, deep composition. Uh-huh. The raw materials that I work with here at the Sacred Grove are the wild inspiration of a jam. And I get these mm-hmm. great players, you know, you know, from Snoop Dogg to Ben Harper to mm-hmm. Stanley Clark to, you know, uh, Taylor Hawkins, you know. Yep. And um, I love, I've got about 15 or 20 of these little movies now. And they come over, I throw a wild party, I pour drink and dinner down them, whatever it takes, you know, for it to be a party. Uh, I have sober ones, too, by day. Um, and but basically, they come over, my buddies come over here, and I've got six cameras. Uh-huh. It, it's evolved now, it didn't start this way, but now I have six cameras. Every square foot of the studio is close mic line-checked, and routed. Wow. And I have my, I actually record in Performer for some reason. I should be in Pro Tools, but I just, yeah. I'm faster in DP. Um and it's all routed. I have a template up. I just hit, you know, I hit record, and the whole studio is recording. Uh-huh. When the doorbell rings, the cameras go on, and I got six hours memory in each camera. Uh-huh. Um, and they just go on. They stay there. They're all locked off, wide shots. That's you know, cool. Guys, forget they're there. <laughs> In fact, I wish they would remember that they were there. So they stop picking their nose, you know, <laughs> That's right. and um, and shrubbing out while they're playing. That's right. You know, I need to. You know, anyway, another story. So. The band, you know, my friends come in, we jam, we laugh, we talk, we jam some more, and then what every musician loves is the playback, says, hey, check out what we did, and we play it back, and everything, oh, we're so cool, we're so cool, but instead of just listening back, I put more instruments into their hands, brass instruments, you know, other wrong instruments, stuff, and uh, they hoot and holler, when it comes to the brass lines, I'll shout, you know, dun, 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 you know, and, and everyone's making a horrible racket, but at least we're all playing, is this in... I swear to God, there was one. This, my next movie features a woman who came who's doing a documentary about drums. I got her on the brass, and she was playing with Thomas Lang. And, um, and she, we're just hooting. You know, we're not making that much of a noise, but we're pretending we're Tower of Power. And we're blazing, and, you know, and she's really getting the rhythm. And, uh, She's got, you see, do that. She's blowing. You can see the veins in her neck and her lungs, and she's pushing out that exact rhythm. Uh-huh. And by the end, you know, the tape finished. She said, Well, I'm so sick of it. I thought I was actually playing. Well, <laughs> guess what, honey? Uh, I'm going to make sure, you know. So later, I cut up the track, and I can see what she's playing. Yeah. That rhythm. Yeah. And I play it myself. I overdub it. I foley it. Uh-huh. It's literally the opposite of miming. Yeah. She's really playing. She's really coming up with a solo, and it's my job when she's gone home to take it, to, to put a tune to, to the rhythm that she was blowing. That's cool. Wow. And I'm not much of a brass player myself, so it sounds kind of crap, which makes it all the more realistic. Wow. So the music is fake in the sense that I foley the, her music later, um, but it's extremely real in the sense that... Yeah. The drumming track, the the raw material, the backing track, you're not just seeing them play live, you're seeing them make it up. 
Uh-huh. They've never, they don't know what they're going to play next. They're actually literally making it up as you watch them on my, on your screen, uh-huh. my cameras. Um, so it's a combination of that completely free form, wild yeah. creativity, which you never get when you're doing a back, when you're in the recording environment, recording a track, there's an entirely different mindset and a very different creative space that you're in yeah. to when you're over at my place. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so I get really cool stuff. And then with that really cool stuff, most really cool stuff, like these jams, last 17 minutes. You don't want to hear that, because most of it is crap. (laughs) But I can cut out those gems, those nuggets, and cut that down to three minutes, four minutes, and uh, build up. Then that's where the deep composition comes in, where connecting the pieces is a a mission of great creativity, and very engrossing it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then I put in little piano stuff, I pull out my guitar, add some bass, whatever instruments are missing, and create a piece of music out of this raw material. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, by the way, I'm cutting film and final cut. Yeah. And so I cut that, you know, I slice and dice the 17-minute jam, I mark it up, and I, I, I sync up all the cameras, so I got, you know, I, get, I got the, okay, now I start to cut it down, and as I'm cutting the, the music, I'm cutting the picture, yeah. and this piece of music is a bit dead here, but that shot, I need that shot, so I'm going to keep those four bars of music. Uh, this four bars of music kind of cool here, but, the, you know, he's sticking his nose, so I'm not going to, you know. And so the film and the audio interact, uh-huh. and I'm cutting both. Yeah. Um, good way to crash your computer. Yeah. <laughs> Have the final cut and DP open. Yeah. So that's what the Sacred Grove is all about. Now, I've got quite a few of these movies now, and it started out as just fun. You know, for me, the studio is just a great big train set, and I love to tinker in it. I'm still a roadie. I climb around, <laughs> and I hide all the wires. I've got troughs underground so that you can't see any of the wires. It doesn't look like a studio. There's no engineer in here. Yeah. You know, you come in, and it's a party. There's no, there's no, you're not looking at the back of some guy's head saying, yeah. oh, can you give me a little line check on that, uh, just, just, Hit that microphone for me, would you? Can you give me a blast on that guitar? No, none of that. It's already rolling. The drives are burning when you walk in the door. That's cool. <laughs> Eddie, Eddie's looking at me, and I know what he's thinking. He, he, she's thinking we both You're want to, fired. We both want to come over there and hang out and no play doubt. sometime. My God, we're here like geeks too, and we're like thinking Stuart Copeland's a geek too. He wants to he wants to plug stuff in on his I own love too. To plug I'm like, stuff in. that's awesome. I to Shirley and Spinoza and plug stuff in. I love it, man. <laughs> One of the last questions I have for you is. Um, Talk to us a little bit about this project uh, that you've been working on or that you composed as a composition. And I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it called uh, Gamelan de Drum? Or Gam- Gamelan de Drum. Gamelan de Drum. Okay. It's a gigantic symphonic piece yeah. uh, commissioned by the Dallas Symphony. Right, right. And has been played by the Royal College in London and by the great uh, Cleveland Symphony. Yes. Uh, Cleveland Orchestra. And um, it is about the. Balinese Gamelan Orchestra, mm-hmm. uh, which is a set of bells, very, very exotic, um, very sophisticated music that okay. they have uh, all over Indonesia, but particularly this particular flavor in Bali um, is really very developed harmonically. It's, it's one of the only forms of music outside of Western music that is, that is so harmonically developed, and with these bells. Um, and they have their own versions of scales, and it's, it's, it's tempered in its own weird way, so that they're all in tune with each other. And it's just this beautiful sound. I mean, I first discovered this on non-such explorer series when mm-hmm. I was in college, you know, um, the Gamelan Bells. And so the Dallas Symphony has amongst its ranks some members of, an, of a percussion ensemble called De Drum, who are five insane Texans who've spent the last 20 years studying 
Balinese, uh, Javanese, and other strange ethnic forms of music, and amassing a huge collection of these instruments. And the orchestra invited them to commission a piece to feature them and the orchestra, these five guys with their gamelan. And they came to me to write the piece. So I did. It took about two years to write this piece. Um, and um, has been delighting audiences ever since. Uh, if, if I may say so myself, it really is cool. I mean, these five guys banging away on all those bells and all these strange instruments with a 90-piece orchestra chugging away is pretty cool show. Very cool. It's neat. I saw some clips on uh, online, and it looked pretty amazing. Loved yeah. it. It, it. Any chance that that might travel? That you might be you might uh, be performed by other uh, symphonies across the country. Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, they, it's kind of uh, got, you know the the group the uh, drum yeah. out, of, out of Dallas, Texas. Sure. They're working it. They're looking for shows, and uh, they got various irons in the fire. That's cool. Uh, we've had uh, three outings. Uh, the Dallas will probably put it back on in a couple of years. Um, that that world. I mean, I'm writing a concerto for Liverpool right now, and another one. You know, these things are all for like 2014 and okay. 2015. I'm, you know, I've, I've, 2014 is booked up. I'm now, I'm now, you know, just starting to. Things are slotting in for 2015 in the in the orchestral world. It's very very long lead time. Yeah, I've got an opera coming up down in Long Beach. Uh, as well. Hey, listen, one more final question from a listener. Uh, uh, his name is Gary Peterson. Uh, he's from uh, Morayfield, Queensland, Australia, and he has a question, and uh, we'll end up with this. Um, he asks, um, you know, what has been the hardest thing or some of the hardest things for you to deal with in this music business over your career, professionally and personally? Um, you know, and he says, footnote, you continue to inspire me uh, to this day. Cheers. So that's from, uh, that's from Gary. Well, I guess the thorniest question, um, of course, there's lots of hard stuff, um, like dealing with all those late nights. Um, but one of the thorniest questions is the interface between art and commerce. Um, when does um, being true to your artistic vision equal self-indulgence? Mm-hmm. And at what what does an artist have to surrender to the marketplace? And is it, you know, a decision? decisions come up along your career where you say, look, I need to do this show because lots of people watch it, but it sucks and I hate to be seen on this show. And so that question, the manager says, look, swallow your pride. I don't care how much it sucks. A zillion people will see it. You'll sell more records and be more popular. But only dumb people play that show. Uh, you know, no, lots of people watch that show. And so that conflict, um, which in its, you know, most class sense is that question there. Should I do take this media opportunity even though it equals jumping the shark? So often jumping the shark, you know, for instance, the power ballad. When the band just says, okay, that's it, we're a heavy metal band, but the only way we're going to get to the arenas is if we do a power ballad. Right. You know, da 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 da
fan of the band that hated, hates the new power ballad is replaced by ten new fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to end the show, I'd be sort of remiss without um, asking you this question, and I know this is a common question that's probably asked of you often, but um, is there any chance that uh, the police may reunite again in the future or at some point? Unlikely, but not out of the question. Um, you know, life is so great for all three of us doing really cool stuff where we get to be the boss of our own universe. Yeah. And frankly, we've lost a lot of the humility that it takes to be a member of a band. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we discovered that the police reunion was so exciting because, wow, you just can't deny walking out on that stage in that response. Yeah. But we were just cogs in the machine. And my fingers didn't belong to me. They belonged to the tour. And it's just like, for two years, you're you're like in the army or something like that. Okay, we're the boss of everything. But actually, no, we aren't. The tour is the boss of everything. And we are employees, just like everybody else. And creatively, you know, we've all traveled. We aren't the same three guys. And, you know, yeah. they're all kind. you know, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a real double-edged double sword. Mm -hmm. And the excitement is would be worth getting back to except that I think the three of us are finding lots of excitement without having to be in, without having to join the army sure sure yeah. I mean would 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 even going back uh, you know like if you did decide to hook back up again and and do you think you'd get that passion or that same sort of sensibility back if you decided to make new music as opposed uh, to touring? I had a I had a scheme last week which went poof <laughs> uh, which was, uh, you know, I have my parties over here. I have really great dinner. And, <laughs> and since the last time Sting came over for dinner, I have built the Sacred Grove. Interesting. So there we okay. are. Okay. Andy and Stingo and I yep. having dinner. And we got some other <laughs> buddies, maybe Eric Idle, Joe Walsh, some of my other, you know. And it's just a jolly, jolly dinner. This is this is the plan. It all, like I say, let me tell you right at the outset, it went tough, you know. I can say what's well, in wouldn't your Wouldn't that have been cool? Well, man, let's go out of the studio. Nah. Oh, yes, let's go. You know, a little, a, a very cool, uh, the camera's running, and uh, I am recording a uh, picture and sound. Um, <laughs> sorry, anyway, and more, more wine, more wine, champagne. <laughs> and, it's a, you know, get Sting on drums, and, you know, the complete, you know, not the police, yeah. but the three blonde heads. And here's the thing. Sting is an incredible musician. Yeah, yeah. When he's not busy being a dictator, he's an unbelievable musician. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I would have that thing, you know, after a couple of vodka tonics, and get that talent going, fired up in here. Yeah. And then we all have a lot of laughs, you know, get get the women folk on the, on the brass instruments, get Trudy, Kate, and Fiona, you know, blazing away on the trombones. It was going to be great. <laughs> and then, here's the best part, they all leave. Jeez. mine. It's on my hard drive. Jeez. Just you look out. And that's, uh, and that's where the poof comes in, right? <laughs> oh, man. That's amazing. Well, Woulda, coulda, shoulda. We'll keep watching that YouTube hey, channel. One day, one day I, you know, I've, I've, like, I've got my spider's <laughs> web here. Yeah. You know. Because yeah. we do have a lot of mutual friends, and we actually get along really great. Yeah. And there's no reason why sometime in the future we're not going to have a dinner party, and guess what's going to happen next. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? That will not be the police. Yeah. And yeah. if it were to be called the police other people would own it. You see, that's the problem. The police doesn't yeah. belong to us anymore. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Mm. In two senses. Legally, it doesn't belong to right. us. 
belongs to Universal. In every other sense, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to a million gazillion people yeah. who grew up with those songs, own those songs. They're not our songs anymore. Yeah. You know, if we went out on stage and played those songs wrongly, or here's our new concept, we're going to be artists now. This is that, you know, conflict between art and commerce. It comes down to expectations again. You know, those songs don't belong to us anymore. Jeez. We're just shaking our heads here. I know. I know. Where do you go from here? <laughs> well, where we go from here is yeah. I'm writing a beautiful symphony. There you I'm go. writing the uh, score for um, the 1925. I got the rights to the 1925 black and white silent Ben Hur. Really? Did you? Which I'm cutting the two and a half hour movie down to 90 minutes and using the score that I wrote for the arena production of Same. Wow. And I'm going to go out and play shows with a big-ass orchestra in a giant movie. That is cool. Oh, here yeah. in the States, or where are you going to do That's what's next. Wow. You're going to do those shows here in the States, or where will you... Where, where, where... Um, I hate to mention names, okay. because that, that jinxes things. Sure. I'm, I'm building up that, and I'll probably, you know, that'll be something I can parachute into any orchestra and play. Wow. Very cool. Well, you have to keep us posted on that. We're yeah, very definitely. interested in that. Why, well, sure will. Well, Stuart, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for spending all this Thanks time. I know we took you a little longer than you anticipated, but we really appreciate yeah, the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, now you got to plug all my sites. <laughs> we will. <laughs> well, go, ahead. go for it right well, now. Go for it. Go, go, go ahead. Uh, Twitter. Um, what the hell is my Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> Copeland Music. At Copeland Music. At Copeland, Copeland Music. Music. Gotcha. And yeah. the, the site where you can see all these sacred growth things, Stuart Copeland Net. On YouTube, Stuart Copeland. I'm actually just beginning to conceive of this whole world of um, YouTube partnered networks, mm-hmm. cool. and which is where I belong mm-hmm. with this stuff. And mm-hmm. so, at the moment, um, it's just there at Stuart Copeland Net. You know, yeah. whoever Neil Peart of the Sacred Grove, okay. Serge Tankian of the Sacred Grove. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, and of course, you got your website stuartcopeland.com, and uh, and you're yeah. on Facebook too, so people can connect to you there as well. Yeah. Very no cool. problem. Thanks a lot. All right, you guys. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, Stuart. <laughs> thanks, Stuart. Okay. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Stuart Copeland for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, and Scott Sheriff for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. 